Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Lubitsky, a professor of government and Latin American studies at Harvard University, as well as the director of Harvard's David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. His research focuses on democratization and authoritarianism, political parties, and weak and informal institutions, with a focus on Latin America and has written an array of books, including How Democracies Die with Daniel Ziblatt, which we'll discuss today, which has been referenced more than a few times, not only on this podcast, but in many of our discussions, both public and internal. So, Dr. Levitsky, Steve, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, as I told you before we started, for democracy nerds like us, what you and Daniel have written is really part how-to book and part Rosetta Stone. And so, How Democracies Die, we were talking about this a little bit. You all wrote this in 2017, right after Donald Trump had taken office, but if you read it, it reads as if you guys wrote it a week ago. And so give me a sense of your background. Obviously, as we noted, with your study of Latin America, we've seen its troubled history, not always successful history with democracy, but give us a sense of how you get your start in the interest of this subject, and then how you got to this book, and then we'll go from there. I've been passionate about democracy since I was a college student in the 1980s when I first started studying Latin America. I started traveling to Latin America. At that time in the 80s, there were civil wars going on in Nicaragua and El Salvador, Guatemala. And I, at a very young age, got exposed to some of the costs of losing or not having democracy and just began to study Latin America at a time when military rule was ending, when Latin Americans were coming to grips in many countries with the terrible consequences of military dictatorship. And I really came to value liberal democracy and spent really the first 25 years of my career studying democracies, how they're built, how they survive, how they work, how they break down. Wrote a book uh, about a decade ago about competitive authoritarianism, about sort of new forms of, of authoritarianism that have been emerging in the 21st century. Never, ever, ever thought I would apply any of this stuff to the United States. But when Donald Trump emerged on the political scene, and even a little earlier, when things really began to polarize and norms began to break down, especially under the Obama administration, both Daniel, who had spent a lot of time studying Europe in the 20s and 30s, and I, I had studied Latin America for many years, began to recognize things that we had not seen in the United States before, but that we had seen in the regions that we studied. And I think that made us a little more sensitive, perhaps, than some people around us to what could be happening and to what some of the warning signs were. As you mentioned, the book was really sprung out of an op-ed that the two of you wrote immediately following the 2016 election. I can tell you that was a very dark time for me, personally and professionally. I couldn't believe it. And I think maybe that's why we got him, right? It was just this enormous failure of imagination that anyone like this could possibly be elected. I mean, I was never a very good Republican anyway, but he was certainly the last 
camel that broke the camel's back, for lack of a better way to put it. And so when you all wrote this, you have the four key indicators of authoritarian behavior, which are rejection or weak commitment to democratic rules of the game, denial of the legitimacy of political opponents, number three, toleration or encouragement of violence, and four, readiness to curtail civil liberties of opponents, including the media. It feels like maybe the first three years of Trump's administration were practice, and then the last year of his administration was him putting all these things into play all at once in the context of COVID-19 and then the things we saw in the wake of George Floyd's death last summer. I would go back a little further. and You could see Donald Trump ticking off these boxes even when he was a candidate. And that was one of our main points. One of the keys to protecting democracy is making sure that societies don't elect these guys in the first place. Once you put them in the White House, once you put them in the presidency, they're a threat. They can do a lot of damage, as we saw. The key is to identify and just make everything possible to avoid electing these guys beforehand. We saw Donald Trump, for example, condone and encourage violence on the campaign trail. We saw Donald Trump deny the legitimacy of his rivals on the campaign trail. We saw Donald Trump say that he wouldn't necessarily respect the results of the election on the campaign trail. As a society, we should have known better. And one of the things that you all posit, and I think is right, is that political parties, at least in the United States, have played the role of circuit breaker. In this case, the Republican Party not only didn't break any circuits, it just ripped the whole panel out of the wall. So did that start with Donald Trump in 2015? Or if you're looking back now, if you're sitting in your office now looking back, is there a period or is there a specific event where you say this is where they lost the will and the ability to do this? People go all the way back to Goldwater. But in terms of really beginning to challenge norms, I saw a big change with the rise of Gingrich. Not that Gingrich invented this. I think he was just smart enough to notice the changing winds, to notice the radicalization of the Republican base, and to notice that a much more aggressive strategy, both in terms of discourse and in terms of behavior, would pay off in Republican politics, that it would be rewarded by the Republican base. And so I think that the rise of Gingrich and the rise of Fox News were accelerant. That's where you begin to see a change for me. But still, you know, for years after that, the bulk of the Republican leaders in the early part of the 21st century, most of them still continued to play and adhere pretty strictly by democratic rules and norms. So I don't think Trump was inevitable, but the process began much earlier. And so leaning back a little bit into your experience with Latin America, where democratic institutions, whether constitutional, formal or informal, had always been probably tenuous at best, but correct me if I'm wrong, we sort of pride ourselves of ha on having gotten it right here. And clearly, we took that for granted. So do you see any elasticity left in the system that will allow us to bounce back from where we are, which is on the edge of you know, something much worse and darker? I don't think we should overstate just how different the U.S. is and how much stronger U.S. institutions are. They are stronger, and they provide us with a certain amount of elasticity. But one reason why our system was so stable prior to the 1960s was we confined the political community to whites and primarily to white Christians. The political community was not representative of the entire U.S. population. And our movement towards multiracial democracy, really beginning in the 1960s, 
triggered the polarization. I don't want to oversimplify, but in part, it triggered the polarization that we're confronting now. But our federalist institutions, our judicial institutions, the professionalism of our civil servants allow for to push back. And we've seen this in the daily revelations about what Trump tried to do to the attorney general's office. There is a certain amount of slack in the system, fortunately. This is why you see people doing their job and pushing back against a president who tried to abuse power and, and tried in some cases just to openly violate the law. But there's no question that our institutions were weakened by the Trump presidency. I think another four years of Trump would have had devastating consequences. It's very, very hard, in fact, impossible to predict just sort of how much punishment they can take. But if politicians continue to whack at norms, to whack at rules, and particularly in their discourse, to tell their supporters that this is not a democracy, this was not a clean election, that these are not legitimate elected leaders, at some point the system is going to get. How you describe the civil rights movement of the 1960s, could you make an argument that that was the starting point of the 50 or so years that have gotten us here, that maybe so much of it was held in place by the Cold War, you know, the good economy of the 90s, the war on terror of the 2000s, and now those things receded in the background or whatever happened, and now this is where we were, that the system was sort of laid bare and someone like a Donald Trump could come in and, again, not the source of the issue, but certainly he's like, okay, well, I had a mole, and then Donald Trump's the UV light that turned it into cancer. Political communities need to have some minimum of cohesion, something that holds them together and says we're all part of this, the same system, and we value that. And, you know, you're absolutely right to point to the Cold War. I go back further to World War II and to a lesser degree, but you're right, the war on terror were things that reminded us that we're all in this thing together as Americans. So you had that pull factor pulling us together. And you had prior to 65, a relatively homogeneous political community because we had excluded African-Americans. And so two things happened. The Cold War ends. And so that pull is weaker. But also we're just a much, much more and increasingly diverse community. It's harder. It is harder to sustain a political community, harder to sustain a set of shared political norms in a diverse community. It's not possible. It has to be possible. It's the only way that American democracy thrives in the 21st century, but it's harder. So the combination of losing the Cold War as a source of cohesion and confronting the fact that we are a much more diverse and egalitarian society than we were 50, 70 years ago, yeah, it's a much more challenging environment to sustain democratic politics. So I just want to read a quote from the book. It says, quote, this is how democracies die. Blatant dictatorship in the form of fascism, communism, or military rule has disappeared across much of the world. Military coups and other violent seizures of power are rare. Most countries hold regular elections. Democracies still die, but by different means. And so I'm sure that there are probably half a dozen, if not more, examples of you seeing that in Latin America. And I think as your colleague, probably, you know, whether or not it's Hungary or Poland or any of those countries that are now seeing this, is what we're seeing in the United States just about what we're going through, or is there something going on more broadly, sort of blowing in the winds around the world? Well, I think we're still trying to figure that out. I'm not quite as pessimistic as some of my colleagues about the state of democracy in the world. The last 30 years 
are far and away the most democratic period in world history. It is true, I mean, that the 1990s were a really special period after the collapse of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall for about 15 years, I would say between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Iraq War, the United States and to a lesser degree, Western Europe were the world's dominant power, world's dominant economic, military, and ideological power, really the only game in town. And in that context, liberal democracy thrived across the world, in part because there really were no viable alternatives. That gradually has changed over the last two decades. The United States is not the power that it was 25 years ago. Europe also is in much worse shape. And of course, we have the rise of China and a much more aggressive Russia. So we're inevitably, invariably in a, in a much more multipolar world in which the liberal powers are still strong, still influential, still important, but not what they were, not hegemonic the way they were, say, in 1995. And so I think that inevitably is going to challenge democracy across the world, and it has. The other thing, which I think we're still coming to grips with, is the rise of what I would call illiberalism within the West, within the liberal West, the rise of ethno-nationalist, illiberal right-wing forces that challenge some of the basic tenets of liberal democracy. The U.S. is really the only place in the mature democracies where this force has actually come to power. But it's an important force in France. It's important in Italy. It's important in elsewhere in Europe. So I think we're still coming to grips with why that's happening and exactly what the consequences are for democracy. But China and Russia are not the only things challenging democracy in the world. There's a real challenge from within that we haven't faced in decades. There is a guy named J.D. Vance who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, and he's thinking about running for the United States Senate in the state of Ohio. And he gave a speech a few weeks back at the Claremont Institute or one of the Claremont things. And he said, if you are an opponent of the American nation state, it is the conservative movement's job to either A, reduce your power, and if necessary, destroy you. Now, that sort of sent alarm bells off in our head because a lot of times, as you know, would-be authoritarians don't say stuff out loud. He had a bullhorn there. How are we in a place now where that somebody who wants to rise to one of the highest positions in the United States said, if you don't believe in a nation state, which the United States has not been, and I don't believe is, you're done and we're going to take you out. I think that is the central challenge. And that is the central propellant behind the radicalization of the Republican Party. It's hard to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine going back to a world in which white Christian men are sitting at the top of our social, economic, political, and cultural hierarchies. It's really hard to imagine going back to that. But that, in essence, is what radical Republicans seek. Many Republicans, as you know, Reed, feel like the country they grew up in is being taken away. And that's a very powerful sense of loss and sense of threat, to feel like the country as you understand it or knew it or how you identify with it is being lost and is being taken from it. That's not just disagreement over tax policy, or you don't like the other party's foreign policy. That's a big sense of loss. That is deeply threatening. And I think it's what ultimately fuels the radicalization of the Republican Party. I think that's been going on for a while. One of the things that Trump did was kind of cross the line and begin to much more openly, much more explicitly express that grievance. Politicians before Trump rarely went there. And the ones who went there, people like King in, in Iowa were kind of treated as pariahs. But Trump made it okay to go there. And that kind of opened the floodgates. And now 
ambitious Republicans like Vance are embracing that ethno-nationalist position. And it's hard for me to imagine how that ends well. I want to read another just quick line from your book, quote, unwilling to pay the political price of breaking with their own presidents, Republicans find themselves with little alternative but to constantly redefine what is and isn't tolerable. You wrote this four years ago. It appears to me that they have not decided that anything is intolerable. Yeah, things are a lot worse than Daniel and I imagined when we wrote the book in 2017. I could not, even on my darkest of days, imagine one, events like January 6, 2021. And I certainly could not have imagined that the bulk of the Republican Party would essentially go along with that. No, I mean, we started saying last summer, as the listeners have known, that, you know, the election wouldn't be over on November 3rd. It wouldn't be over until Joe Biden took the oath of office. Now, we didn't know what that interregnum was going to look like, but we weren't particularly surprised by it, unfortunately. And as we like to say, take whatever you think the worst could be, double it. And that's probably where you'll find the Lincoln Project on any given issue vis-a-vis the Republican Party. But now, you know, you talk about January 6th. Now what we're seeing is revelations that Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, was pressuring the DOJ to find election fraud, that someone within the Justice Department was authorizing or asking judges to spy on, for lack of a better way to put it, Democratic members of Congress. So it seems that if the sliding scale of authoritarianism is sort of a one to 10, did they approach 10 between November 3rd and January 6th? Well, I think you have to make a distinction between the wishes and the behaviors of authoritarians in power. And then what happens with the system? The system didn't go to 10. But again, we should have known better. Anytime you elect an authoritarian as president of the United States, you're going to get four years of somebody hacking away at democratic rights and democratic institutions. Trump did exactly what we expected him to do. What authoritarians do is take institutions of government, what are supposed to be neutral referees, and wield them as personal and political weapons against their opponent. That is exactly what Trump tried to do with increasing aggressiveness over time. The good news is that our state institutions fought back. So the difference between the United States and, say, the Philippines or El Salvador or Honduras is not the authoritarian. The authoritarian instincts were the same. The difference is that we had relatively robust institutions and civil servants in those institutions who pushed back. And I think we're seeing that now, a response to that now in the wake of January 6th, that in a lot of states that are controlled by Republicans, both in the legislative branch and the executive branch, that they are disempowering, if that's a word, state, county, local election officials. In fact, I was on a phone call last week with a woman who's working in Texas who said that the bill didn't pass because the Democrats walked out. But one of the provisions of the Texas bill would have been that it was illegal for local election judges to remove unruly election watchers, which just opens the floodgates to all sorts of mischief. So it seems like the federal institutions held, but it looks like at the states, they sort of learned from their mistakes and now they're going to make it harder for people to vote. You see in a place like Florida, which I harp on a lot, that they passed this anti-riot bill that I think will have a chilling effect on civil disobedience and public demonstrations because nobody wants to get slapped with three felonies because they happen to be standing next to a broken window. 
the Republicans learned a couple of things from the 2020 fiasco. So Donald Trump, his effort to steal the election or overturn the election results after the November election were a total failure because he was ill-prepared and incompetent. Republicans learned a couple of really important lessons. First of all, they learned that there is a large number of mechanisms that can potentially be used legally to reverse election results. And two, most frightening of all, they learned that they would not pay an electoral penalty for overturning election results. In fact, that they would likely be rewarded by many Republican voters, Republican activists, Republican media, and many donors for reversing an election. That there's this bright red line that most of us assume that nobody would ever think to cross. They learned that they could cross that line without penalty. And they've gone to work since January 2021. And I'm terrified. I mean, this is not something that we expected when we wrote How Democracies Die. If you read How Democracies Die, we assign a lot of responsibility to the Republicans for abandoning their gatekeeping role and allowing Trump and supporting Trump in his bid for the presidency. But we do not consider the Republican Party, when we wrote the book, to be an authoritarian party. Today, four years later, I think it's fair to characterize the Republican Party really from the bottom up as an authoritarian party. And I am terrified that they have both the will and that they're creating the capacity to steal any future election. That's one thing that our listeners have heard me say too many times in our last episode where I had Rick Wilson, who you were with the other night, and Stuart Stevens, another one of our senior advisors, say is that I don't know if they're called Republicans anymore. I don't know if they're conservatives. We sort of toy with the idea of national populism, but they are. They're well-resourced, they're dedicated, they're patient, and they're willing to do whatever it is they think it takes. And this is the other part, too, I'd like to get your opinion on, Steve, is that authoritarian structures tend to be vertical. So that's when you got Trump at the top and all the various people sort of like in a Jenga game below him. Maybe he's in the middle. I don't know. We can have another argument about that. But it's also an ecosystem. So Trump and the political piece is just one of it. You know, his family, his people. Then there's the elected Republican officials, the Republican apparatus, you know, people like Heritage Action and other think tanks who have a very, very prominent role to play in these things. Fox and OANN. And then, you know, the financiers, the people that pay for this stuff. And so all of them reinforce one another. And so my question is, knowing that as we look forward to 2022, there might be less of them than there are of the rest of us, but they sure seem to be willing to do anything and everything it would take to shrink the franchise and understand that the margins are small. They only need to win by a few. They don't need to win by a lot. And when they lose by a little, you know, maybe that's what you're talking about, right? Is this where everything gets a quote unquote canvas? Is this where you see the Georgia legislature stepping in and saying, no, Bob didn't win. You know, Tim won instead. To add to that, our electoral institutions also favor the Republican Party. Daniel and I have started calling this tongue in cheek constitutional welfare. The way we elect the Senate and, of course, the way we elect the president through the Electoral College favor sparsely populated territories. They always have. And this is not the Republican fault, it's not the Republican doing. But over the last couple of decades, there's been this dramatic demographic shift, political demographic shift, in which the Democrats are overwhelmingly a party of urban areas, of the cities, and the Republicans are overwhelmingly a rural-based party, a party of sparsely populated territory. In the past, both parties had urban and rural wings, so that our electoral system didn't have a partisan bias. But now it does. 
And the Republicans can basically hold on to power with about 46%, 47% of the national vote. They no longer have to win national majorities to hold on to a lot of power to control the Senate, to win the presidency sometimes, and to control the Supreme Court because the Senate has a big say in who makes it through to the Supreme Court. And what that means is the Republicans have a weaker incentive to moderate, right? If the Republicans had to win 50 plus percent of the national vote to be viable, to win any power, they'd have to have a different kind of appeal, right? They could not engage in this sort of national populism that you described. It wouldn't work. They would fail. But if you only got to win 46, 47 percent of the vote, then you can sort of hunker down in the base. We talked a lot about the Republicans here, but where are the Democrats on this? I have a saying, Steve, and I stole it from somebody. So if you want to steal it, please feel free that Democrats play chess and Republicans eat the pieces. The Democrats are a very different species. The United States is a very big, heterogeneous, diverse place. The Republicans, given that we have a two-party system, the Republicans are an extraordinarily homogeneous party. The Democrats are everybody else, for better and worse. They are a very heterogeneous party. That's double-edged. It means that the Democrats are not particularly ideological. It means that they're not particularly disciplined. They're not able to turn themselves into a highly cohesive force behind anything. They've got to negotiate everything internally. They have a hard time getting anything done. They have a hard time sustaining a coherent message. But ultimately, it makes them pragmatic and almost invariably willing to play by existing rules of the game. It makes the Democrats less of a threat to democracy, I think, but it also makes them a little more slow moving, a little harder adept, rapid adaptation. Whether the outcome of that is that they're playing chess and the Republicans are eating the pieces, maybe. There are a bunch of other analogies you could come up with, but they're playing very different games. You're right. You know, that's the one thing we've talked about as we think about the next election in 2022 and then the presidential after that, which, let's be clear, has probably already started in its own way. What do you see as some essential things that need to happen to preserve either our institutions such that the next election can happen and there's enough give in the system? Or what do we need to do as individual Americans, you know, to make sure that next November isn't the end of what we've always thought of as American democracy? There could be a horrible nightmare outcome in 2024. It is entirely possible that the 2024 election will be stolen. I don't think there's a single recipe, a single solution, a single strategy. I think it's a multiplicity of things. The small D democratic forces in the United States are still very strong. And we are not about to slide into Russia or Hungary or Venezuela. The Democratic Party and and even more broadly, the small D Democratic forces are electorally viable. They're well organized. They're well financed. You know, blue states like California, New York are not about to be wiped away. All of that said, it's going to be a bunch of different strategies. I mean, if I had my brothers, and I think this is unlikely, unfortunately, the, the Congress would pass a series of electoral reforms that would shore up elections and one, make it harder to suppress the vote. And secondly, make it harder to gerrymander. And third, make it harder to engage in the kind of shenanigans that apparently Republicans are planning in terms of overruling local electoral authorities in 2024. So federal legislative action to secure elections is critical. I don't know that it's going to happen, certainly not to the degree that I would like. 
Another critical thing, though, is the forging and the sustaining of a broad, small D democratic coalition. This is where you guys come in, right? When democracy is under threat, it is essential that champion supporters of democracy come together in defense of democracy. And that's not easy, right? That means that Romney Republicans or other conservative Republicans have to work jointly with AOC. And that means that both sides have to put down elements of their policy agenda, have to set aside some pretty important disagreements, legitimate disagreements, and work together to defend democracy. So it's not just a blue state coalition that's going to save democracy. It's got to be a broader coalition. It's got to be a coalition that includes as many Republicans and as many conservatives as possible. It's essential, essential that the small D Democratic coalition bring those folks on board and work hand in hand with them and make the concessions necessary for that coalition to be sustainable. It's interesting, though, that a couple of things. One is that 75 million people still voted for Donald Trump, which surprised us and disappointed us on several levels. But two, in the wake of a presidential election, coalitions, they coalesce, but they don't calcify often, right? They don't hold together. So we've seen whatever it was, whatever you want to call last year, atomize again. And now it will be a lot of work on our part and other people's part to say, I know we used to be Republicans and you don't trust us and maybe you don't like the way we make ads and, you know, but like, I'm telling you, we're better at this together. You know, we worked alongside, you know, people like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, former Mayor Nutter in Philadelphia, numerous veterans groups, Latino groups last year. And so, you know, we're starting the process of getting that band back together. But how do we go to an AOC and say, you know, Congresswoman, I know you probably don't like us. You've said you don't like us, and we get that. But for now, like, we're all we each other's got. You guys have been saying that. There are people uh, really across the political spectrum who I think increasingly buy into that. I've been broadly very impressed with the discourse and behavior of Bernie Sanders over the last year. A lot of people, both on the center right and the center left, get it. And I think those of us who are working to preserve democracy just have to keep repeating that message that this coalition is essential. This is the way that you defeat autocrats. It's maintaining a broad, multi-party, multi-ideological coalition in defense of democracy. That's right. And, you know, we do that all day, every day. And I've started to fill up my calendar with a lot of the folks we worked with last year and trying to get them to come on places like, you know, the podcast and LPTV and just getting them back on the phone. Because I mean, we are lucky enough that a lot of the folks that we did get to work with last year are as dedicated as we are. They all understand what's at stake and aren't going to let it go easily. So, Steve, before I let you go, is there anything else you're working on that you want to share? Well, Daniel and I are hoping to do a follow-up book to How Democracies Die, How to Save Our Democracies. That's what we're working on now. Well, I'll tell you, as soon as it's written and out, I will read it, I will study it, and we will have you back on. And as always, everybody, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Again, Doctor, thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list, and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, 
be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Sentmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.